0: And the innovation of Bitcoin, the discovery of Bitcoin is that it is not scarce by decree. That's the problem with stocks. That's the problem with political currency, that these forms of things inherently can only have that artificial scarcity mandated and enforced by an artificial institution or group of people in power. Proper inheritance planning and
1: use of trust has the ability to pick up free money sitting on the table. In the US, you're subject to a inheritance tax at up to 40%, which is almost criminal. There is a legal way and a legitimate way to reduce that 40% to effectively nothing if you have good plans
0: So all of these things ultimately is a bet against human ingenuity because if I'm going to buy a barbed bowl and store it for the future, I am telling the free market because all prices are a way which we communicate to the free market. If I were to buy a bar of gold, I'm communicating to the free market that I am short on humanity.
2: This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal, family, or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at slash podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week I have on Peter Dunworth and Luke Broyles. Guys, welcome. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Jeff. Thanks for having us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Glad to have both of you guys. Um, Let's get started. Let's start with a very bullish topic. Um, Let's just get really bullish on Bitcoin specifically, right? So, you know, 15 years ago, humanity discovered this idea, this Bitcoin thing. That's the idea of immutable, absolute scarcity. What are the implications of us discovering Bitcoin? We can start with Peter and then Luke can add. I'm I'm glad you started here because...
1: There was probably the most profound thing I heard talked about from this point of view was from Luke and I'll give a very high level and then hand off. And one of the things um, in talking with Luke, he mentioned was that Bitcoin ushers in a new era of humanity. If we look at this and there are three stages to humanity. There is pre-written word, which is basically what we had until we had cave paintings right up until the invention of the computer, right up until the invention of Bitcoin itself, there was a written word. And now from Bitcoin moving forward, because we have an immutable ledger, we now have a recorded history of everything that's happened. And this represents the three phases of humanity, the, the newest one being only 15 years old. And this is where I'd love to hear more from Luke on that.
0: Yeah. Uh, by the way, thank you for having me on, Joe. It's a pleasure. Um, you know, both uh, you, Joe, and Peter are very special friends of mine. So it's a pleasure to be doing this with all three of us. It's a blast. But um, yeah, to add on to Peter's point and and your question, Joe, I I think it is a new era because up until 15 years ago, up, up until 2009, for the entirety of human history, we could only store our energy. Our only form of energy storage was something that could have an increased supply, right? You know, in the ancient days, you know, you could store your energy in salt or wheat or or cattle or land, land that you could defend, you know, with your spear, bow, and arrow, or whatever. And and you know, you know, more recently we have bonds, political currency, you know, corporate paper, equity, uh, gold, uh, you know, but all of these things ultimately is a bet against human ingenuity, right? Because if I'm going to buy a bar of gold and store it from the future, I am telling the free market because all prices are a way which communicates communicate to the free market. If I going to buy a bar of gold, I'm communicating to the free market that I am short on humanity. I am short on, uh, I, I do not think humans are capable enough, um, in- ingenious enough, or have the vision to go out, build better technology, channel more energy, and create more gold, right? If, if I am, you know, it, ultimately, you know, it's all about optimism and pessimism, right? You know, if I am, going to be of the worldview that the world's getting worse, everything's getting worse. I'm really skeptical of the way things are gonna go. The logical thing to do would be to buy guns, bullets, food, you know, and seeds, right? Because it is fundamentally a pessimistic bet. I am taking my energy and I am betting that this specific aspect of the future is going to be worse off than it is today, right? And frankly, before Bitcoin, you know, even though that was our personal conviction, we were forced essentially to do that because if buying government debt or if buying, you know, some, you know, scarce asset out there, you know, commodity, you know, security whatever, we're we're basically saying that I I don't think we're going to be able to do that. Now stocks, you know, to a certain degree were an innovation, right? The Dutch had, you know, a few centuries ago because now you could fractionalize that and, you know, you're you're trying to create artificial scarcity, right? That's kind of the beauty of the first stock markets, you know, with the Dutch and Bank of Amsterdam, you know, First Central Bank. That's kind of the beauty, and in my opinion, why the Dutch, you know, uh, you know, East India Company and, and you know, the, the Dutch Empire, you know, is, was really powerful. It's actually much more powerful than, you know, us Americans are taught in our, you know, school books because we like to make, you know, England look like the big bad guy that we overthrew in our revolution. But um, but the point is that what the innovation of the stock market was, was it was trying to create a form of artificial scarcity that, you know this company is going to be able to channel channel energy. You know at the time spices that was the that was the big scarce commodity at the time, right? You know sail across the world, get your rare spices from India, China, wherever, bring them back to Europe and sell them, right? Uh, you know and today you know in, in my own house I have more spices than you know probably many upper middle class or maybe even kings and, that, and emperors had at that period of time. And so my larger point there is that what we've been trying to do for thousands of years is find a way to price energy in terms of artificial scarcity and thus divorce ourselves from this pessimistic bet, right? Instead of buying the spices themselves saying that I'm pessimistic on humanity thinking we'll be able to produce less spices, but instead trying to be more optimistic and say, I think we're going to produce more spices and therefore I'm going to buy a finite fraction of those, you know, of the share of that company, right? You know, and the innovation of Bitcoin, the discovery of Bitcoin is that versus stocks, it is not scarce by decree. That's the problem with stocks. That's the problem with political currency, that these forms of things inherently can only have that artificial scarcity mandated and enforced by an artificial institution or group of people in power, right? And so, therefore, when they inevitably 100% of the time abuse that power, they can debase that energy and thus, you know, make things even more pessimistic. Um, And so, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it brings back this optimism and it allows us to buy actual verifiable scarcity that we can use to price in all of the energy, the sum total of energy in all the industries uh, for today and, and theoretically in the future. I, I mean, essentially Bitcoin is the trade of the past, present, and future. Bitcoin is pricing in the gold that we've taken thousands of years to mind. It, it, it's, t- it's pricing in the energy that we're creating today. And theoretically, most importantly, it's pricing in the energy that we're yet to create in the future. So long answer short is that in my view, Bitcoin is this unit of account, it is this, it is this true first, Scarcity outside of human control, and because it's outside of human control, then it's is most likely, almost certain, going to continue pricing in more and more energy. And so, fundamentally, being bullish Bitcoin is being bullish humanity, you know, economically on, on the human race. And to be short Bitcoin, to be betting against Bitcoin, is inherently a bet that I think next year we're going to be worse at building houses, and that the government's going to be in debt more, and that you know the companies, you know, so fundamentally. Bitcoin's a big deal. The scarcity is a big deal because it's a before and after moment. It's much more optimistic with digital scarcity.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I love how you phrase it as Bitcoin is an optimistic bet on humanity. I, I completely agree there. How do you guys think about pricing Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin, maybe $40,000, $50,000 coin. How do you value Bitcoin? Like when you value an equity, you can kind of forecast the cash flows and kind of discount it back. How do you guys think about valuing an asset that has no cash flows maybe we can start with peter and then go back to luke again
1: this is the great difficulty that i have in that and that's probably the reason why bitcoin is currently you know sort of dwelling at a circa fifty thousand dollars price that it is so difficult to understand it's so difficult to value that there's no pricing models there's no um, way to put an accurate um, fair market value on on bitcoin and what what i look at is look at the use case of Bitcoin and think, well, how big are the markets for the use cases that Bitcoin presents? And the ultimate use case for Bitcoin is a store of value and a unit of account. They're the two biggest markets that Bitcoin can address. And I look at, you know, the store of value market's been distorted over the last 20 years with housing and stocks now becoming store of value. But if we look at the rawest of raw um, store of values, it's a $14 trillion market cap with gold. So on the most basic of thoughts that Bitcoin should be at least a $14 trillion market cap, and we're currently sitting at circa $1 trillion. Now, that is the most basic of premises that anyone I think can uh, wrap their head around with very limited knowledge or very limited reading and study on Bitcoin, that as a worst case scenario, it should at least aspire to be greater than a $14 trillion market cap. And given that it is much better form of um, gold than gold, I I think it's fair to say that it should be multiples more. Um, from a market cap perspective. So I think in, for anyone who's not looked at Bitcoin and you know what the potential value of it can be, I think the store of value function is a very good starting place to do that. And then you can extrapolate from there. Well, what happens if it gets the unit of account market? What happens if it takes on the monetary premium? What happens if it takes the medium exchange? All of a sudden, that's where the numbers get very, very large, very quickly. And um, we might just start with a conservative uh take on that and i'll leave the rest to luke
0: yeah yeah conservative yeah, yeah. um yeah I, I, it, it's funny because between us three you know joe and, and peter and myself you know us three you know what's conservative to us um is interpreted as insane uh you know for most people in the traditional world uh or, or traditional finance um you know so regarding your question about price how do we price that uh, I, I think the simple answer is that Bitcoin is going to millions of dollars of coin, then tens of millions and hundreds of millions, then billions, tens of billions and hundreds of billions. The only question is your time horizon, right? I, you know, In my content, what I do, I always talk about how Bitcoin is going to a million dollars or $10 million. I throw out a lot of large numbers. But as people hopefully notice is that I never give a specific time, right? Because fundamentally, the reason for those large numbers is not some prediction based on future cash flows, right? Because that's not what Bitcoin has. But it, it's it's getting a larger, deeper issue. You know, it, it is the quote, you know, it's the clickbait to get people really thinking. Is that wait? The whole thesis of this asset is that it reprices everything else, right? You know, what is the value of political currency in relation to true digital scarcity, right? You know, what is the value of cattle in ancient Rome in terms of a Boeing seven forty seven, right? It's like how do you price those two things, like. In my view, one works and one doesn't. The cows don't fly. The plane does fly, right? You know, this is like escape velocity, right? Or, or, or it's about, you know, rockets escaping Earth's gravity well, right? It's, you know, engineers, physicists, I, I think in many ways, this is why they tend to understand Bitcoin much faster than people in traditional finance because people in traditional finance are trying to price Bitcoin. You know, that exact question you had, Joe, which is a great question. They're trying to price it, but in relation to everything else, right? You know, they look at Bitcoin and they say, this magic internet money with it is worth a trillion dollars it only has a few million users like a trillion dollar market cap for this asset it's only 15 years old why is this worth a third of apple that makes no sense it's completely overpriced and my argument would be that it's completely overpriced because it's completely out of the pricing system they're using to measure from right it, it, it's you know the the phrase bitcoin is digital gold i i do use that phrase and i think it's useful But I think it's only useful in trying to communicate future technology and the value of said future technology in terms of, you know, the present day. You know, if Bitcoin was digital gold, then be worth $500,000 per coin, you know, essentially, you know, give or take. Right. But I don't think it's that. I think it's much more, you know. So the Bitcoin's digital gold, I think, is useful in the same way that saying Bitcoin's going to a million dollars, a billion dollars a coin is useful in trying to communicate. But ultimately, in in the end, I do believe it's. It's flawed, you know, in the same way saying the locomotive is the iron horse or in the same way of saying the Internet is a instant newspaper. It's like, yeah, they are, but really they're not right. The Internet is so much more than than instant newspapers. Right. You know, people can watch a conversation with three different people in three different locations in the world, you know, real time for them. And we can have this conversation real time when we're recording this. Right. So, you know, Internet is so much more than instant newspaper. The locomotive was so much more than uh, an iron horse. And likewise, Bitcoin is so much more than digital gold. And so, you know, $500,000 per Bitcoin is not some absurd price target. It's the very beginning of the beginning, in my opinion.
1: I agree wholeheartedly in that. And this is where an understanding of what Bitcoin is and represents the best form of money ever invented. There will come a time when people will not want anything but Bitcoin for payment of services. And when that happens, we're gonna see what absolute digital scarcity looks like when there is unlimited demand for a, for a good and service. And one thing I'd like to mention just briefly is, one of uh, the great American sales trainers was a guy called Zig Ziglar. And he said that money was not the most important thing on earth, but it was damn close to oxygen. And in thinking about Bitcoin being the best form of money ever invented, and it's being damn close to oxygen, I, I, I put to you the question, how much would Jeff Bezos pay for an hour long oxygen tank if he was trapped in space. I dare say he'd pay anything he had to for that one hour of oxygen to get him through to whatever he needed to do. And this is where it, it it's a nice to have at the moment. We in the Western world are absolutely privileged in the fact that we don't require it right now and we can pick it up for pennies of what its true value is. But um, in the very near future, in less than 20 years, I think it will be a a must have, not a nice to have. And this is where that analogy of how much would you pay for a bottle of oxygen if there was no oxygen? Well, you would give your life, well, everything but your life for it. So um, this is where we're headed. But um, explaining that, and I think both you and uh, Luke and Joe do a fabulous job of explaining this uh, really difficult, complex topics to digestible format. And very happy to uh, be on this call with you both.
0: Can I add one more thing to that, Joe, if that's all right? Peter, I think that's such a great point. And I I think, you know, just to add a little extra note here is that a lot of people, I think, from the outside look at us and they think that we're pessimists, right? They look at us and they say, oh, you know, this, you know, they think it's going to 5 million, you know, Michael Saylor thinks Bitcoin is going to $5 million, you know, Peter Dunworth saying Bitcoin is going to $7 billion, you know, people look at us and they think, oh, those Bitcoiners, they're pessimists. And they're just pounding the table, waiting, you know, twiddling their thumbs for the end of the world, the end of the, 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 the economy, right? You know, all those Bitcoins, are just a bunch of fear mongers. And to Peter's point, I, I want to, you know, for me, I think I emphasize that's worth making is that that's true in both instances, right? If investing in real estate, bonds, you know, stocks, gold, seeds, guns, and ammo, if those things fundamentally are pessimistic um eventualities right into peter's point the ultimate one is the oxygen right that's the ultimate 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 more than food more than shelter more than water even oxygen's that ultimate trade right you know you would sell everything asap uh for that oxygen if your life depended on it and on the contrary in my view that's what bitcoin is on the inverse right you know when you, from the pessimistic perspective when your life is threatened you are never going to own any of the optimistic trades you're only going to want that oxygen. And in the vice versa, you know, you, me, you know, everyone watching this, when we're talking about Bitcoin going up forever and all these other things collapsing, that's not, in my view, that's not being like some sort of param- paranoid person saying that, Oh, everything's going to get worse. It's going to collapse. I that no, it's it's the inverse. And that now that we are coming up cro- across this exponential curve where the optimistic scenario is about to play out so overtly and so obviously, you know, the the exchange rate is going to go to infinity, right? In the same way, everything go the exchange rate of everything in terms of oxygen goes to infinity when your life is on the line. When the optimistic scenario is approaching, you know, the the exchange rate of all the pessimistic trades in terms of the optimistic trade, Bitcoin uh, goes to infinity as well, right? And so, you know, in my view, um, I I think that's really important to keep in mind that um, on one end you have oxygen as the ultimate pessimistic trade. And on the other end, you have Bitcoin as the ultimate optimistic trade.
2: Yeah, I completely agree, Luke. Bitcoin is definitely the ultimate optimistic trade. Um, Luke, you have a really interesting thread that I always liked because you do take that low time preference, uh, long term, you know, vision when it comes to investing and saving for the future. And you you started the thread with this sentence, and I'll I'll read it out loud, where you said you have less in common with an average person from the year twenty one twenty three than with a Roman citizen from the year 23, even though the future person is 20x closer to you in time, can you explain that idea?
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I find that it's a fascinating idea, um, and, and a lot of people resonate with that. That, that was one of my first—that you know, was my first piece of work on Twitter I put out, and people loved it. Um, you know, which frankly was a huge, pleasant surprise to me because, to me, I think that's so important. Because if we look back in time, 100 years, okay, what was 100 years ago? Okay, 1925 uh, or 1924, excuse me. I'm ahead. a year ahead of myself. Um, what was 100 years ago? Okay, what was going on in 1924, right? Um, you know, we j- I just had World War I. Uh, Great Depression was coming up. I mean, if you think about what the average person lived through, I mean, did they have air conditioning? You know, did they have a smartphone? Did Could they have, could they ever in their life for a single time have a... Conversation with another human being instantaneously, visual or audible, right? No, you know, there there weren't the telephones, there there was not Zoom, you know, there was not YouTube. Like for the first time, for thousands of years, humans could only communicate in real time in person. And now, all of a sudden, in the last hundred years, we can now communicate, you know, digitally, remotely. You know, first it was the phone, then, you know, smartphone texting, you know, and now here we are with video calls. You know, in 10 years, our assumption should be that this is ancient technology in 100 years our assumption should be that is ancient technology right you know in the same way you know these kinds of digital meetings didn't happen 10 15 years ago it's like you know the history are these technological windows they're getting faster and faster and in the last century maybe two centuries or so we have crossed a chasm where now these technological eras that window where one paradigm is modern one paradigm is ancient that window has shrunk in time so much it now we have those windows within a single human lifetime, you know, in the mid late 20th century. Now that's within a working career. And now we're at the point where, you know, it, it's multiple within a working career. Right. And probably by the time my kids are around and, you know, Joe and Joe and, you know, myself, and we have kids, like it, it's going to be a technological window every 15 years. Right. And then maybe they're what's going to be for their kids. Right. And so I think this is not just some piece of, you know, popium optimism that, Oh, everything's going to magically get better. But it's like, we have, only technologically progress at a faster and faster rate for all of human history and so the pessimistic case obviously you know world war three famine you know billion people die all that right that's the pessimistic case but even in the optimistic case you know it is really critical to keep that in mind the optimistic case is that everything of your modern life of what you do today in the year 2024 everything of what you do is fundamentally not going to exist in 100 years right that's the optimistic case you know and so that's why i think it's really important people be considering what are the technologies on the horizon and how am i number one you know taking care of myself right the, the protective pessimistic paranoid perspective how am i preserving the energy i have and then how am i making the most of the opportunity right and the beauty of bitcoin is that it's both bitcoin is protecting okay i can protect my energy against the ending era of stocks bonds uh you know in gold and now i can also take advantage of the opportunity of transitioning my energy to that new era. So so the larger point of, of that phrase is that I, I do believe that. I do believe on a technological basis in the same way someone born in the year 1924 has less in common with us today than they did with a Roman citizen. I, I think it's not only possible, I think it's logical that if we're optimists, we assume the world is around in 100 years, that there's going to be way more change in the next 100 years than the previous few thousand years, right? You know, the Roman could talk... Via letters, you know, some sort of pen pals. The person in 1825, you know, besides a small number of them, you know, via you know the telegraph or something, you know, they were talking via letters. Now today, nobody writes via letters anymore, right? It's like it's technological paradigms go completely out of the window. And I think Bitcoin is a critical part of that thesis, right? Is that this is the money that makes all previous forms of money irrelevant, right? For thousands of years, we've used relatively scarce forms of energy storage. Now we have finite. Finitely scarce energy storage. That's never happened before in history. And so, again, when it comes back to the pricing thing, you know, if you're trying to price Bitcoin in relation to any these other assets, you you are inherently going to be too bearish. So, um, yeah, fundamentally, it's a larger um, uh, fight against energy poverty. But I think Bitcoin is a critical, critical, critical component of preparing for this exponential curve we're on. You know, every iteration is inherently larger than the last. So I, I think it's really important people... Be considering this, and that's why I'm so glad you know people like you and and Peter and you know everyone watching is thinking about this because you know we are, in my opinion, the cutting edge of thinking about these things in the world, right? You know, there's maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, a couple million of us uh, that are advancing this. And
2: in this frontier moment, we're talking about the current status of global Bitcoin adoption. As of 2024, the landscape of Bitcoin adoption across the world is actually fairly expansive. Countries are embracing Bitcoin at different rates, with Australia and Nigeria leading at a 13% ownership rate, followed by Ghana at 11%, and India at 8%. In North America, Canada, and the United States, the rates stand at 3% and 5% respectively. In Germany, ownership is present, but at a lower 2%. These percentages might be surprising, but the median Bitcoin, including crypto, holding in the US is only at about $500. Considering a significant portion of Bitcoin is held by Americans and US institutions, the median holding in countries like Australia and Nigeria is likely even lower despite a higher percentage of their population holding Bitcoin. This means that many people have some Bitcoin or crypto, but their allocation is basically zero. This is good for Bitcoin since many people likely have some exposure. But it's also good for the future outlook as virtually no significant percentage of the world has a serious allocation to Bitcoin yet. So, yes, we are potentially still in the very early stages of global Bitcoin adoption. And now back to Peter and Luke.
0: Eventually in 100 years, there could be 10 billion people or more um, that aren't having these conversations anymore because the peak of the eras we're dreaming about today have already passed decades ago. <laughs> so,
2: Yeah, 100%. It's almost like you have two perfect storms colliding at the same time. You have like this Bitcoin thing, which is perfect digital scarcity, and people are comparing it like we talked about to, to gold. And it's like, to some extent, that's like comparing Alexander Graham Bell's phone to the iPhone. It's like, yeah, you're, they're kind of the same thing, but the iPhone is a lot more valuable than Alexander Graham's, Graham Bell's you know, did original telephone. And that's just Bitcoin today. And then at the same time, to your point, humans are becoming exponentially more and more productive. So we're being able to produce more and more of everything in a more efficient manner. And it's just like digital scarcity is combining with abundance in the real world. And that is just probably going to melt everyone's mind when it comes to what the price of Bitcoin is even will be.
1: People really have trouble grasping that concept and Hats off to our education system for indoctrinating the world in the belief that we need to have an inflationary monetary system, that um, everything will break if we don't. And, you know, there are some wonderful examples given that, um, look, computers, they're forever getting better, yet the price keeps coming down. Imagine we live in a world where, you know, not only that, our money money actually buys more goods and services the longer we hold it, the longer we save. Who would think that is a great thing? Well, and this is the, the broader hope you know, beyond price is that it inspires humanity to be better, you know, to chase our dreams, to aspire to self-actualize and deliver services and goods and basically desires, you know, deliver on desires to um, broader humanity. But um, that will all be driven by price going up. And this is where um, actually talking about this and explaining what's about to happen, I think is really important because when it starts to happen, there is that fear and concern that, oh, if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars, we're going to be in a world that's totally unknown. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be all sorts of things. And I I just would like to say that I completely disagree with that notion that if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars or more, that the world will be in chaos. And it's fundamentally illogical to think that the world would be in chaos the higher the price of Bitcoin goes because Bitcoin is the most ordered system we have on Earth ever. So why on Earth? Would there be more chaos when this has a greater financial influence on society? Those two thoughts are incongruent. So, I I hope the day that that we have Bitcoin hyper Bitcoinization because I think it will create a, a level playing field for all and uh, prosperity.
0: The the people the people saying that the world is going to get worse when Bitcoin goes to a million dollars to ten million dollars. It, it's the same kind of mentality as saying. You know, it, let's, let's go back 200 years, right? Uh, you know, this gets back to the exponential curve, right? You know, for thousands of years, the horse was the fastest means of transportation, right? You know, it's like saying, hey, the horse is going to be obsoleted by this iron horse, you know, this locomotive. It's like saying, you're saying people aren't going to use horses in the future. Oh, that would only happen if the global economy collapsed. I mean, how are people going to send mail if, if you don't, if you can't send mail on horseback, right? I mean, you're predicting the end of the world. And so, to Peter's point, I think the sum total of the world will be better off in that hyper uh period, but I think for that former technological paradigm, I think all the chaos will be contained within that paradigm, right? You know, the world as a sum total gets better and better, the the greater the locomotive has in relation to the horse. but, you know, if you're within that old paradigm, that's where the chaos is, right? So, you know, I, I guess to agree with Peter and go one step further, I, I think there could be... Chaos and turbulence, right? I mean, especially if liquidity is leaving uh, bonds, especially, and flowing into Bitcoin, um, you know, which now with the ETF, that's going to be a bigger question. Um, but, you know, as the energy drains from the horse era, you know, from the inferior technological system, like, I do think there will be chaos, but there will be an exponential amount of chaos, growing chaos, within an exponentially less relevant Uh, technological system right you know when when the um, you know frankly when the bookstores and and the you know malls that were made irrelevant by you know amazon and you know the internet era when they all shut down frankly nobody cared right (laughs) because because you know within that within that circle things continue to get more chaotic things continue to get more pessimistic but it's a smaller and smaller and smaller share of, of, of the world right you know when the horse is dominant you think if horses went away the world will end but when horses have now lost 99% of their dominance, you know, almost nobody cares about that last 1%. So anyway, that's just my thought on that.
2: Yeah, 100%. Luke, you brought up the the idea of the ETF, which is now officially approved. What do you guys think is gonna happen now that the ETF is approved? What is your outlook for, you know, the rest of this year and maybe next year as well? We can start with Peter again, then go to Luke.
1: If I look at say the experience we've given, um giving advice on Bitcoin in the financial realm for the last call it eight years. It starts off with a 1% to 2% allocation, and that is something that everyone can get behind. You know, Most people, even the most risk averse, would not be upset with a 1% to 2% allocation. And then as the confidence builds and it uh, becomes more well-known and advisors start talking about it more, those flows will end up being circa somewhere between 5 10%, maybe even up to 20% if you have a listen to Mohammed El-Aryan and Larry Fink talking about this being a safe haven asset. So I think there's going to be a constant stream of capital flowing into a very tightly held market that's going to continue to get more tightly held. So it's going to be harder and harder. That really only has one, one thing to do with price, and that is going to force price up dramatically. And in, in, in addition to that, I think what we could see this cycle is that this capital that's coming to Bitcoin is going to flow into Bitcoin, and it's not going to go and bleed out the risk curve and move into Ethereum, move into Solana, Cardano and every other altcoin that's out there. This capital is the heaviest, it's the biggest weight of capital that Bitcoin has ever seen up until this point and it's going to hit Bitcoin and it's going to stop there. It's going to buy and hold and typically it's going to hold for probably a five to ten year period with not much movement other than a little bit of trimming here and there to reweight the portfolio. So. I'm wildly bullish on what this means purely on a supply-demand curve. It um, will redefine what what Bitcoin is because now we have a weight of money like
2: Bitcoin has never seen. Luke, do you have any additional thoughts or Peter nailed it?
0: Yeah, I, I, Peter nailed it. And there's so much more that um, I, I know he could have said. <laughs> uh, we're, we're both very bullish you know, in, in, in transparency, right? Um, obviously. And I think what I would add to that is that Bitcoin is basically like a forcing function on people's risk, right? Bitcoin was perceived at high risk, uh, you know, a few years ago. And perhaps it still, well, it is still perceived as high risk.
2: In this frontier moment, we're talking about the concept of risk. If you buy a U.S. Treasury bond and hold it to maturity, you get a nominal rate of return that is guaranteed by the U.S. government. But it's not clear whether it will be a positive real yield that outpaces inflation. If you hold Bitcoin the return is certainly not guaranteed, but historically, it has been a much higher return than holding U.S. Treasuries. Bitcoin appears risky because of its extreme volatility, and it definitely is risky in the short run. However, this risk and volatility is contrasted with a lack of long-term uncertainty as immutable block subsidy halvings programmatically occur every four years. There is no future uncertainty when it comes to Bitcoin's future supply schedule. Historical data shows that anyone who held Bitcoin for a little more than five years maintained or increased their wealth in terms of U.S. dollars. Additionally, the median return after holding Bitcoin for five years is a 10x increase, something that you can't get with U.S. treasury bonds. And now back to Peter and Luke.
0: But reality is the people that are living in the horse era you know, their view of making money is gaining more political currency units faster than the rate of death of the political currency unit system, right? So, you know, I'm I'm in the United States here, I'm an American, you know, my bias as an American is that, hey, if our inflation rate is roughly, let's say, 5%, you know, the American political currency system uh, cannibalizes itself at roughly 5% a year. And so if the political currency gains, uh, nominal gains on my, Diversified portfolio between a diversified portfolio of relatively scarce assets. um, If the total aggregate value of that portfolio grows in nominal political currency value by at least five percent a year, I'm keeping up. Now, if my real return is let's say eleven percent, I'm really happy because I have made an extra six percent, you know, uh, you know, currency units on on my assets, right? You know, basically, you know, the government has aided me. Thank you, government, for debasing. Productivity elsewhere in the world by uh, offshoring uh, debasement and inflation to Africa, to China, to uh, Latin America and South America by offshoring that debasement and instead retaining purchasing power here. I have now made six percent this year, right? And so for me, that's what I view as low risk, right? I just want to meet minimum, meet the minimum of the death of my currency system, plus make an extra couple percent. And you go out and you hire a financial advisor to advise you on which relatively scarce assets you want to diversify into to exceed that benchmark. But the point with the ETF, and, and the point I think Peter made really well, is that, you know, it, what, what I think he's alluding to is that when Bitcoin comes in, like like Peter said, you know, 1% one to, one to 2% allocation, okay? This is something Preston Fish has famously said, you know, for years now, is that uh, I think it's a 2% allocation, you know, 98% allocation to cash, 2% allocation to Bitcoin, you know, in a four-year, five-year, six-year period, whatever it was, outperforms a 100% allocation to the S&P 500, roughly speaking. It, it, it's something absurd like that. And so if I'm in my ancient world view where I don't yet understand Bitcoin, you know, I, I believe Larry Fink from 2017 when he was saying it's an index of money laundering, I haven't yet heard Larry Fink come around the circle. You know, I'm still dealing is that If I look at my financial advisor and, you know, the, the diversified portfolio we've chosen is yielding me 6% real or 6%, you know, above the, you know the benchmark but then this other portfolio with just maybe two percent bitcoin allocation something tolerable is you know an 18 percent return in my political currency yes. units i mean all of a sudden i do not have to understand bitcoin i can still be 98 percent allocated but i will begin to understand that it is lower risk to move that energy or that two percent energy over to bitcoin because if i don't I'm getting a lower yield above the rate of currency destruction. And so what the ETF allows, you know, and, and this is numerous surveys that come out, you know, 79% financial advisors, you know, reportedly, you know, if they say we're going to begin advancing the Bitcoin ETF for their clients. I'm guessing, like Peter said, probably one, two, three, five 5% allocations will recommend it first, um, you know, they'll probably, you know, recommend the ETF to collect their fees because they're incentivized to do so. But, you know, the point is the reason why this is a big deal is that it opens the floodgates to the people that have not yet understood Bitcoin and won't do the work of you know, taking self custody because they don't understand the risk of not taking self custody. And it gives them that aha moment that I don't like Bitcoin. I wish about it earlier, but I need a 1% allocation. I need a 2% allocation because if I don't, I'm higher risk in my political currency unit system, right? So, So that's my perspective, why the ETFs are bullish from that first principles mindset what that means nominally, you know, Standard Charter, uh, Chartered on January 8th of uh, this year, I I, I think, um, you know, talked about how they expect 50 to $100 billion of, of inflows in, into Bitcoin, uh, you know, th- this year in, in 2024. You know, and they were projecting $100,000 Bitcoin by end of year 2024, $200,000 Bitcoin by end of year 2025. You know, I, I don't necessarily, you know, agree. Maybe that's too bullish. Maybe that's too bearish. <laughs> um, but the point is, if we're talking tens of billions, perhaps even a hundred billion dollars of inflows. Okay. At the time of recording this, you know, there's what 58, maybe $60 billion of Bitcoin left on exchanges. I mean, it's simple math. If you have a hundred billion dollars this year chasing an asset where the remaining supply and exchanges is 60 billion, I mean, it's a forcing function for price to go up and the higher price goes, it's an increasing forcing function. I'm forcing the people that don't yet understand Bitcoin to accept they have to at least get off zero because They're going to realize, and I've been saying this, you know, Joe, I was, I came on your podcast first back in January of 2023. I was telling people, you know, it is higher risk to have zero Bitcoin, right? And so, you know, I don't know, people watch, probably most people watching this have a decent percent allocation to Bitcoin. But my encouragement for those that don't is get off zero, right? You know, Peter, Joe, myself, we have very high allocations to Bitcoin. But, you know, my encouragement is do what you're comfortable with. Do what you can sleep at night with, okay? Avoid over allocating to Bitcoin. But at the very least, please consider Getting off zero because pretty soon I think most people are going to begin to realize that having a zero percent allocation to the internet is a really bad idea when you have a hundred percent allocation to radio and newspapers.
2: Yeah, completely agree. It's also crazy to think that like right now we're at the point where ninety three percent of all Bitcoin have been mined, and we're just now opening the spigots of you know capital that can flow in from fidelity each grade charles schwab whatnot and most of the coins are like not even moving like 70 percent of all bitcoin haven't moved in the last year so everyone's whole like you know holding because this is the best asset to hold if you're trying to save for the future and we're about to see so much new capital flow in and try to buy it and arguably you know not a very 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 small percentage of the world has adopted bitcoin as their savings technology and so it's like you know, 99.9% of the world is about to try to come by this asset that, you know, is held in the strongest hands of all strong hands. So it could be a wild, you know, decade.
1: I I might make one point which sort of just came to mind when you were talking there, Joe. The other thing that we I haven't heard anyone talk or consider is that there are 500,000 financial advisors, investment advisors in the world who now are able to sell Bitcoin or a Bitcoin related product in the ETF who are going to be highly incentivized. They're not stupid. Financial advisors aren't stupid. They may play dumb because they haven't been able to sell this thing yet, but there's a lot of smart minds working in financial and investment advice who are going to be, well, they're going to be highly incentivized to sell this and they are going to be not only highly incentivized, they're going to be paid very handsomely to have a higher allocation to Bitcoin for their clients and understand it as quickly as possible and work through with that client, the risks and the downside risks and how they're going to plan for it. So there's a new workforce of 500,000 advisors out there about to join the marketplace of Orange Pillars. And they have access to hundreds, if not thousands of clients. So um, boy, oh boy, it's, uh, it's gonna be fun the next couple of
2: years. The unchained IRA is continuing to break new records. With a Roth Bitcoin IRA, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of Bitcoin. Unchained offers a solution. They make it simple for you to set up a Bitcoin IRA while keeping control of your Bitcoin keys. Use code FRONTIER for $100 off and schedule your consultation today at unchained.com slash IRA. And now back to the show.
0: Like, yeah. If I can go one further, you know, mm-hmm. let's just break it down you know, 1.8 million coins on exchanges. So let's say 2 million. Let's say 2 million coins on exchanges. To Peter's point, you know, a 500,000 financial advisors. Like, do we think on average, the average financial advisor, you know, the sum total of all their clients collectively are going to own 4 Bitcoin at some point? I mean, it's that simple, right? I mean, there's up to 80 million millionaires on the planet, 2 million Bitcoin. Okay, what happens when 1 in 40 of the 80 million millionaires, what one Bitcoin, right? Or, or what happens uh, when ten times the number of people want one tenth of the of that, right? You know, if if you know two million people of those eighty million millionaires want one bitcoin, all the bitcoin are gone, right? If twenty million, aka one in four of those millionaires want one tenth of a bitcoin, you know, what do they do? The bitcoin's already gone from the first two million people that already bought one whole bitcoin, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, you do the math, and pretty quickly you realize that you know, and the financial advisors are about to start doing the math, right? Because frankly, most of them, you know, I I know a lot of financial advisors, I respect them, but, you know, and they are smart and I think they will learn quickly. But up to this point, because it hasn't even been a possibility for them to recommend the ETF, I don't think they've thought this through, right? I mean, as recently as two weeks ago before the ETF was approved, um, I think it was 39% of financial advisors thought the ETF was going to be approved this year when Bloomberg was saying it was 90%. I mean, you know 61 uh, percent financial advisors uh were on were, we're guessing that the etf would not be approved at all this year like that's how little they've been paying attention to it right and again that's not to put them down that's just that they've it's not even been a part of their model but now it is a part of their model and now that it is part of their model they're going to start doing their math they're going to realize oh my goodness i want every one of my clients with a net worth over a million dollars to get one coin right it's like you know and you know i mean that, that's just what's going to happen because the first people to do that are going to be the ones to figure it out and financial advisors like peter said are heavily incentivized you know the more they help their clients again outperform that you know debasement aka death of the currency the more they help clients outperform that the better fees they get the more clients they get and the more money those clients want with them right and if they're outperforming the market once the clients throw in more money to them versus the other guy you know, their portfolios will grow. I mean, it is in the financial advisor's best interest to begin allocating to Bitcoin uh, or encourage allocations to Bitcoin, in my opinion. And I think people are going to be really surprised uh, how quickly that tune is going to change in the next 18 months here.
2: Yeah. What do you guys think about Bitcoin cycles? I mean, historically, Bitcoin has gone on massive parabolic bull runs. That's followed by 80%, you know, deadly washout drawdowns. I know, Peter, you talked about like how the inflows might be more steady with an ETF. Do you think that this cycle will be different? Do you think that this cycle will have another 80% drawdown, or or what do you think?
1: I, I think it depends on how high and volatile it is to the upside. The, the upside determines and predicts the downside, I believe. If we have a stable inflow of capital to Bitcoin and we just have a slow, steady appreciation, I think there's a likelihood of that continuing. However, if we have capital flow in, we have a massive spike, we have huge volatility the upside, we see a three, four, 500% increase from here. I think there's a very high chance that we see you know, the 80% volatility the downside happen. There's only one caveat that I'm going to put on this, and this is, I think the cycles are going to continue until we have a nation state actor hold the buy button down, that is just prepared to buy At whatever price they have to because they have zero cost for for printing dollars and they can buy a hard good that has long-term value until we see that the the site we will not see a super cycle the super cycle will kick off with a nation state like the us just saying we'll pay we'll set a bar at a million dollars or 10 million or 15 million whatever the whatever they have to they will set the bar at that and they're going to mint a whole host of millionaires and billionaires but I think until we see a nation-state actor with that level of capital that costs them nothing to print money, the the cycles are, are here to stay.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely tend to agree there. I think last cycle I wrongly su- uh, suspected that we might not see an 80% drawdown or 70% drawdown or whatever it was, and I was definitely wrong about that. Um, but the so other I think
1: yeah, I, I was going to say the other thing we need to consider with Bitcoin is that it's all cycles, and because we get 50% of the people in Bitcoin are new every cycle, they're experiencing this upside volatility for the first time. Human nature doesn't change. We get 25 to 30% of the entire Bitcoin community joins in that last little 10% blow off top. And then they eat the 80% drawdown and sell and run and are scared. And what happens is we, we really don't account for the fact that our Primal little brains really haven't developed that much to to cope with market cycles. But because 50 we're at such a low adoption rate, like I think we'd be less than 2% globally as far as Bitcoin adoption goes. So when we move to 4% in the next cycle, 8% cycle after that, as more and more people become aware of the cycles, we're going to get less volatility to the downside. But the volatility, the upside, I don't think is capped. Because it only stay, takes one nation state with with a money printer to say we're setting a floor at whatever they want to. So um, again, it's a great asymmetric bet because downside's capped and upside's unlimited.
2: Yep, that makes sense to me. So now that the ETF is approved, is it no longer important to self-custody your Bitcoin? What do you guys think? Start with Peter again. I I think it
1: is critical for any Bitcoin. And now it's more important than ever before to self-custody your Bitcoin because there is a concentration risk with, with these ETFs. There's going to be a, a pool of Bitcoins that can be potentially easily manipulated. Um, there's all sorts of skullduggery and chicanery that can go on with those pools of capital. And I know a lot of people say, oh, no, they can't. They, they you know By law, they've got to do this and that. And it's like, yeah, by law, they do. But Sam Bateman Fried by law, had to you know, hold Bitcoin on his balance sheet. And guess what? He didn't. So human nature, is, you know, we're going to continue to be humans and be fallible. And this is where uh, I think it's of utmost importance that we are diligent in self-custodying our Bitcoins. Why is that important? For, for two reasons. Firstly, you don't want to lose your Bitcoin. If, if you're here now listening to this, you've done an enormous amount of work. You've made a um, huge amount of sacrifice to be here at this very point in time and there is very little work required to own and self-custody Bitcoin at this point in time. And that's an opportunity that may leave us. So from that point of view, that's the first point. The second point is, is that if you're focused on number-go-up technology and you want this thing to really rip, you don't want people, other people to be holding your Bitcoin and use your Bitcoin to manipulate the price downwards. This is why self-custody is absolutely critical. That the most important thing you can do for number-go-up is self-custody Bitcoin off exchange so that it can't be sold or rehypothecated, and buy more Bitcoin. Two very simple things that will ensure the price will go up.
2: Agreed. Luke, any uh, additional thoughts?
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, I mean, like I I know how YouTube and all this works. It's like, as soon as you start talking about self-custody, people don't care, right? They click away. They're here for number go up. But as I have said before, the message people need to hear versus the message you want to hear is not always the same. Everyone wants to hear number go up. They don't want to hear self-custody because it's boring, it's bland, it's tedious, and it's scary, right? But to get back to the earlier point of that we're on this technological curve, it's an exponential curve. And to Peter's point about our simpleton brains, like that's my concern is that this curve is rising so fast our brains can't keep up. And my encouragement to people listening is that if you are not taking your self-custody seriously, you are not bullish enough on Bitcoin. You are too bearish if you don't have self-custody because you don't understand what is coming. You know, to, to the earlier commentary about market cycles is that I, I fully agree with Peter. I think we're going to have many more drawdowns, maybe even 80% drawdowns. I don't know. Because humans are emotional and we will make bad decisions, you know, more institutions will go bust. There will be repothecation. There will be leverage, you know. But the, the Command-C attack from a nation state, in my view, is inevitable. Whether that's 50 years from now, five years from now, or five months from now, like, people really need to think that through that the United States of America adds you know more unfunded liabilities every 34 hours than the remaining amount of Bitcoin on exchanges you know I can sit here and tell you that if you factor in ETF inflows it only takes two and a half more micro strategies to buy all remaining Bitcoin right and you think about that and you're like wow Luke that's really bullish you know there's 1100 companies in the world bigger than microstrategy that means if only three of them, Make that allocation, you know, plus the ETFs and all the like, wow, that's really bullish, right? Michael Saylor's got a lot of money. Look at all the money flowing in you. Oh, wow, the ETF, that's $100 billion flowing in over the course of a year. That's a lot of money. Number's going to go up. But, and that and that's great, and that's all true. But ultimately, <laughs> all models are out the window when the nation state presses uh, Command C, you know, and, and they will do that. Like, that's what the government did. That's what America, you know, the best government in the world, you know. Or the most regulated and yada yada, you know, America has seized gold from citizens. America has, you know, basically printed money to buy gold in the past, right? You know, it has seized real estate, it has seized, you know, stocks when necessary, right? You know, America has done that. Okay. America has done it. The rest of the nations of the world will do it too. I mean, not not to get political, but we all saw what nations did in the event of the emergency, you know, the uh, of, you know, I, I won't put it by name because then you'll get demonetized. But, you know, I mean I, I think when the government feels threatened, they will very quickly do whatever means necessary to confiscate, say, Bitcoin. And the easiest way to confiscate is not get out the military, go house by house to get 100,000 people to give over the coins. No, the easiest way to do that is to say, hmm, there's a million coins in these ETFs we have here. You know, Coinbase is custodying most of these ETFs. Why don't we just call them up and, you know, in the name of national security for the general defense of America's military interests and, you know, citizens for the good of the public. Let us, you know, just print as much money as we can to get as much Bitcoin as we can possible, right? And ultimately, the point that needs to be said, you know, to, to your early question about market cycles and tying them into custody is that market cycles, in my opinion, will continue. We'll continue to have massive upside and downside perpetually until the moment we get that new arms race, right? And you don't even need the United States to enter into that game, right? It, it easily could. You know, now we have we have two presidential candidates, uh, Vivek and uh, Kennedy, you know, both saying they're at least Bitcoin curious are interested. You know, Kennedy himself wanted, you know, wanted Treasuries backed by Bitcoin, something like that. But, but when a government figures it out, frankly, it, it's over. In my view, it's like it's a clear before and after moment. Um, it, it's the same thing with the horse and locomotive, right? The nation can say, "Oh, locomotive's dumb; it's too expensive," you know, like you know, whatever. Like, okay, we'll give you permission to build a locomotive, right? Okay, we'll give you permission to sell Bitcoin ETF. But the moment the government realizes, well. Shoot, guys, why don't we just leverage our horses to build as many railroads and locomotives as we can as fast as possible to thus obsolete horses? It, it's the same thing, right? Like, and, and you know, to, I guess to finish that out, Michael Saylor's rich, but he can't print money. You know, it's taken Michael Saylor four years, almost four years now to amass, what, $5 billion, $6 billion via his entire company, go leverage long to, you know, as much as he possibly could. I mean, shoot, the government could allocate $5 billion by lunchtime. Right, they could okay out- fifty billion. They, could, they they could do five trillion, right? I mean, we, we, we did that much with with the pandemic. I mean, we, we did the troubled asset relief program after the great financial crisis was what seven hundred billion, you know, hundreds of billions. I mean, what if in a crisis or two, maybe a decade out, we're looking at fifty billion, or excuse me, fifty trillion, uh, you know, per bailout, you know, and what if you know then a cycle or two after that we decide that hey, you know we think the new crisis today is the threat to our currency. We should print as much money as we possibly can to acquire as much Bitcoin as we possibly can to then back said political currency, which even though we're printing a currency faster, actually will make our currency stronger in relation to the rest of the currencies in the world. Because even though their inflation rates are less, they're not backed by Bitcoin, ours is, right? It's simple game theory. And if people are not taking their self custody seriously, they've not thought this through. Like it is inevitable, numbers gonna go up. It is inevitable, that if you have some sort of custody bitcoin you know that it's, it, on a long enough time horizon small risks add up and they compound even if it's just a one percent risk this year maybe next year it's a 1.5 percent risk you know maybe 10 years from now it's a three percent risk but if you compound those tiny percent risks every single year eventually it's a hundred percent risk that you're going to lose all your bitcoin so yes hundred percent self-custody is really important uh, but unfortunately because we're in the exponential curve people won't listen Uh, Because, you know, people have to learn the hard way, you know, unfortunately, most people entering the cycle will um, not understand that and probably many will get
2: burnt. Yeah, 100%. I definitely think another point about the ETF is it kind of traps you into that, like fund, that asset, where it's like you can't knock on BlackRock's door and ask them to send you your Bitcoin to get real Bitcoin after you buy the ETF, you need to sell the the ETF and then go buy real Bitcoin. And if, you know, Bitcoin goes up, you know, 10X or 50X, like you expect it does, then you're gonna be sitting on millions of dollars of unrealized capital gains that if you wanna exit that ETF and get real Bitcoin, you're gonna have to pay 20% to the IRS. And so it's like, then, you know, theoretically in the future, BlackRock could, Real, recognize that a lot of their holders are sitting on massive, unrealized capital gains. Who's to say that they can't raise their fee to 2% to 3% to whatever they want to raise it to? Because if you sell, you're going to pay 20%. So you might just be like, oh, I'll, I'll pay the 2% that BlackRock's going to charge me right now. Like, I guess, you know what else am I going to do? And we've already kind of seen that with GBTC, right? Like All of the other ones are racing to zero. GBTC is like, oh, we'll, we'll lower it to 1.5% for you guys. But they know that like, a lot of the people that hold GBTC are just sitting on massive unrealized gains. So people are just going to be like, well, I guess I'll just keep holding this because I don't want to pay 20% right now. So it's a, I think it's another point. Like, you don't own real Bitcoin when you have the ETF.
1: That's the problem. You're held hostage. And you also limit yourself from all of the financial options that are going to come to the world of Bitcoin. That's, a, that's probably an even bigger problem holding the ETF is that you, you're going to be on the fiat rails And, you know, you're going to have to do your banking or do your buying and selling of that that ETF between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday to Friday. And there's, you know, a stop for lunch and there's bank holidays and all sorts of things. And you compare that to self-custody of this asset that trades 24-7, 365. To me, it's an absolute no-brainer. The optionality that gives you for holding on to it is second to none. And where you wrap in, you know, the multi-seed option and collaborative custody. Uh, all of a sudden it takes all of the risk out of self-custodying your Bitcoin and uh, it presents all of those options into the future. So um, I think it's a no-brainer self-custody for your own peace of mind, for your own future, for number go up, for ensuring that you you don't uh, get hoodwinked or lose your Bitcoin, for reducing future capital gains, for increasing financial optionality into the future. Um, Self-custody is the only way to do it. Unfortunately, it's tarred with a brush that terrifies most people. And this is where I think at the Bitcoin Advisor, we do a really good job of, you know, holding hands with clients the whole way through the process. And one of the things I'm eternally grateful for is the Unchained team um, and the service that you provide that, you know, the Unchained provides a fabulous multi seed option for clients. And I think that service that Unchained offers is only further enhanced by having a collaborative custody arrangement with the Bitcoin advisor to ensure that absolutely nothing can go wrong. There's no single point of failure in self-custody. And the the benefit of that is is for all the reasons I mentioned before, but this is where because this technology is so new, people don't understand how easy it can be. And I I find it very amusing because I actually think it's far easier being in a collaborative custody multisig that Unchained in the Bitcoin Advisor offers than it is in holding a single SIG wallet with Bitcoin on it. And um, that's part of the job. And I thank you for having us on, Joe, to discuss that, that um, educating everyone in the world that this is the best option and best way to hold your Bitcoin is a a fabulous uh, use of our time because it's it's good for every Bitcoin holder.
2: Yeah, 100%. There's nothing better than multi-SIG collaborative custody. Last question, then we can go ahead and wrap it up. Inheritance and trust. How do you guys think about those two topics, especially when it comes to saving Bitcoin for for decades or centuries?
1: (laughs) I I think this is a very understated, uh, overlooked topic in the Bitcoin community. And I think it's overlooked because a lot of Bitcoiners have had a jaded experience with financial advisors and professional service providers. But I look at proper use of um, or proper inheritance planning and use of trust has the ability to pick up free money sitting on the table. So how is that possible? In the US, you're subject to a inheritance tax of up to 40%, which is almost criminal. But if you have inheritance planning and tax planning associated with that, there is a legal way and a legitimate way to reduce that 40% to effectively nothing if you have good planning. And if we think Bitcoin's going to do what we think it's going to do, then having these conversations now before it reaches you know the millions and billions of dollars per coin that we think it's going to do is a really critical conversation to be having because for me it's the last risk free trade available to bitcoiners. I think Bitcoin is the risk free trade, but then when you think about what structure you're actually holding that in, that's the next risk free trade that most financial well most bitcoiners need to be thinking about because for a financial um, advice perspective and achieving better outcomes on a personal level, that is where the free money is sitting. It's the risk-free trade to have that conversation and to talk to you about something that's really important, particularly in the US and less so in in Australia. But the the IRA that you offer with your product at Unchained is absolutely critical because that is the most tax-effective environment that you can have your retirement savings in or any savings in. It's effectively a, a 0% interest rate, a 0% tax rate. Now, that's that's really impressive. And you compare the returns that you'd have in holding that Bitcoin personally to holding that Bitcoin in an IRA. If you hold your Bitcoin, it goes from 0 to $10 million. You sell your Bitcoin, you're going to be left with circa 6 to $8 million, depending on which state you're in and what capital gains tax you've got to pay. So you're going to be left with, call it worst case, $6 bucks. However, if you do that in the IRA, you're gonna be left with $10 million. So you have increased your return by over 60% just by putting it in the right structure. That is a massive free kick. And a lot of people are just missing that opportunity. So I think it's really important that we get that message out there that these are the things that uh, we can help with, or at least have a look at and guide you to, that um, is money sitting on the table, free money.
2: Yeah, I think those are great points. Um, oh, Luke, were you going to add any final thoughts?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I was just, I, I just going to add that I, I think, in my respectful opinion, I think most Bitcoiners um, tend to put the cart ahead of the horse, you know, to use the ancient metaphor. Um, and I, I think what makes this so hard, what makes what Peter and myself and, and you too, Joe, you know, what I think makes this whole custody space so hard is that it's an adoption curve within an adoption curve, right? You have Bitcoin's adoption curve, uh, you know, less cow with future in the past, all that wonderful stuff. But... That's true within Bitcoin as well. Like there is less in common with the Bitcoin future than Bitcoin's past, right? The next 15 years for Bitcoin custody is inherently, it has to look different than the last 15 years. If Bitcoin is going to succeed, Bitcoiners should assume that the custody model that they have today is going to be far less common in 15 years than it is at the present moment, right? And ultimately, it's funny because a lot of people... When they're thinking ahead, with these trusts, retirement accounts, all that, it, in my opinion, I don't think most people, you know, even Bitcoiners, um, are really thinking through all the benefits there, right? You know, if we're just going to stick with first principles, you know, if you're thinking for your kids, you know, trusts, retirement accounts, whatever, you have the three options, right? You can do custodied Bitcoin with counterparty risk, like the ETF, let's say, or you can do self custody on your own, um, you know, where you put in 500 hours, 1,000 hours, whatever it takes to do it properly and make sure you're protected or you could pay someone to help you with that right and you know it, it's funny to see how people react to those three different things right because people you know typically look at those and are like oh well that's really expensive and that's really scary so I'll do this because it's regulated and safe and this is something you know frankly I, I get a lot of negative feedback on it you know when I'm trying to explain to people that counterparty risk in my opinion is not tolerable when you have a bare asset like Bitcoin. Right, you know, FTX was the most regulated exchange in the world, and they're gone. You know, uh, Gary Gensler and the SEC. You know, but you know, as much as I want to respect my authorities, the reality is that they could not manage the the announcement of the ETF. They did not have two two FA authentication on their Twitter account, and that you know today their website couldn't handle traffic. I mean, that's two blunders for what many would argue is the single most important announcement of the last decade for them. I mean. You know, if there are Twitter accounts down for twenty seven minutes, like, like it was or supposedly was, I mean, that's no big deal. But if your, you know, Bitcoin custody is down for twenty seven minutes out of the next hundred years, then that's it. Right. And so that, that's that's why I've been so grateful, you know, to to be a part of Bitcoin Advisor and work with Peter is because, you know, Peter in Bitcoin Advisor's been around since twenty sixteen. You know, the ETFs, you know, at the time of recording have been well, you know, haven't even been around yet a single trading day. <laughs> Right, you know, so that Lindy effect is a massive advantage, I think, uh for people when thinking about that. And most people are just yet to think about that, right? And so my encouragement to people is that before you start thinking about how to save on taxes or how to save against this, or that, the other, or you know, like your number one priority should be keep your Bitcoin safe, right? You know, if if you've got X number of Bitcoin, and let's say they do go to half a million dollars, five million dollars in a short order here, I mean, you know, a, a, a lot of a lot of these clients that I talk to, like it's a pleasure to talk to clients from all kinds of backgrounds, but a lot of the people right now that are taking interest in this are the Bitcoiners that have been around for multiple cycles and do understand that, you know, my Bitcoin is getting so valuable to the point that I got to diversify my custody, right? They're like, you know, Luke, I've gone from diversified assets to now a singular asset. I have to diversify my custody, right? Like, you know, I went X percent single SIG, X percent this multi-SIG, Y percent that multi-SIG, right? And so... I think we are incredibly early to Bitcoin, and I think we're incredibly early to Platter Custody multisig. And I want to echo what Peter said before: is that you know you, you, Joe, and Unchained, and all of our key you know key agents, product providers, software providers at Bitcoin Advisor, you know Peter and myself, are extremely grateful for, because you know our service-based company needs uh, you know incredible products. And I know how much work you guys put into that. So um, you know, for everyone listening, I'd, I'd emphasize. Get off zero um, if you haven't yet and, you know, please avoid custody, Bitcoin, whenever you can take self custody. uh, You know, if you need help with that, there are great products out there um, and Chain's got great products and there's great services out there. I think Peter has done an exceptional job, um, you know, and really what this all comes down to is that, you know, I actually don't think we're any smarter than the average person. I think that we have simply been smart enough to do our best to look. 18 months or 36 months down the line, right? And really, that's true with all Bitcoiners, right? It's not that the average Bitcoin are smarter than the average person, right? You know, when the ETF was approved, you know, there was a space Kathy Wood hosted and I listened, you know, live to Elon Musk. You know, he he was saying things that weren't quite true about Bitcoin. You know, Elon doesn't understand Bitcoin. He's a very smart person. So, you know, it's not about being smart. It's about understanding this is an exponential curve, understanding you have less in common with the future in the past and understanding because of those two givens it is increasingly important that we are a couple of years ahead of the curve uh, because you are going to have less downside and more upside if you're just ahead of the curve a little bit. And so, uh, you know, it, it's a pleasure to help clients stay ahead of the curve. Uh, it's a pleasure to be in the Bitcoin space and a pleasure to have so many friends like you guys. So, um, yeah, I encourage people to check that out. Please, people, get off zero. And in a couple of years, people are going to be saying the safe. Um, you know, remember this conversation because... <laughs> I mean, really, like the narrative is going to be that, you know, in, in a couple of years, everyone's going to assume the ETF safe and um, people are going to forget and then they'll remember and they may remember in a hard way. So, um, you know, don't don't accept counterparty risk. This is an innovation to obsolete counterparty risk.
2: <laughs> yep. 100%. Um, guys, this was awesome. I feel like this was a great uh, conversation. Um, do you guys have any closing thoughts? We'll go Peter first, then Luke. And then where can anybody... Fine to learn more about you and the Bitcoin advisor.
1: Uh, Closing thoughts on this, I think the next two years or the next five years of Bitcoin um, and Bitcoin adoption is going to be spectacular. I think we are ushered in a new era with an ETF approval that is going to be a gateway for so much capital. We we can't quite comprehend it now. I think it's going to be um, exceptionally positive for all facets of Bitcoin, whether it's Bitcoin businesses, whether it's Bitcoin price. Uh, self-custody business, businesses like Unchained and ourselves. And uh, I'm, I'm just wildly optimistic as to what the future holds for Bitcoin entering its new era, um, the, the institutional era of ETFs. And uh, I might hand over to Luke because he does a much better job of explaining what uh, we do. So uh, if you want to talk about that, I'll leave it with you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, um, Yeah, people should be bullish. They really should. And I, I, I think the mistake... The critical mistake people are going to make is not being bullish enough. I said that earlier, but I think it's really important. You know, like the, the worst thing you could possibly do in, in the beginning of the locomotive era is sell your stock in horses, you know, buy some locomotive shares or whatever, you know, triple your money and then sell it and think you're a genius. Right. And go back into your horse stocks. Right. Like that. It's. That's the majority of pain people are going to experience, right? You know, Bitcoin tends to cause max pain, right? Half the people were expecting ETF approval, half weren't expecting it. Then we got both on the same day with the fake um, <laughs> Twitter post, right? So Bitcoin likes max pain. Um, but I think what Bitcoin's going to do in its adoption inherently is going to be most people will buy it and then sell it back for the profits, right? They'll buy it. It'll go to $50 million because you have 10 Michael Saylor-level buyers and then you have you know a million millionaires and you know hundreds of billions of dollars ECFOs like it'll be like oh my goodness bitcoin went from you know thousands of dollars to millions and tens of millions in the course of you know the last few years decade whatever it is doesn't matter point is they'll be like i it can't possibly go higher then they'll sell and then nation print nation prints they press command c copy paste copy paste you know infinite currency loop, right? In the same way Michael Saylor dilutes his own stock for the sake of acquiring more Bitcoin, which in irony makes his stock more valuable. Same thing with political currency. That is the end game. Uh, that is eventually going to happen. And I, I think that's going to be max pain uh, for people is they're not bullish enough. And a major component of that is that they don't take their custody seriously because they're not bullish enough, right? They, they assume their single SIG uh, solution has zero risks, but they don't factor in the question of, you know, what about what happens if someone accidentally takes a picture of that single SIG, you know, and, and then it's gone, right? Or, or what happens if I'm storing my seed phrase in a safety deposit box, right? Or, or what happens if, you know, the nation state I live in, you know, shuts down the ETF and confiscates those coins, right? Or even if they don't directly confiscate the coins, you know, what if they halt trading every 10% move and Bitcoin's making a 10% move every, you know, 36 hours. I mean, you know, and then you get your fiat profits and you have to pay taxes, you know, plus the ETF may be may have like a 3%, 5% spread, you know, pricing people out. I mean, you know, my, my, my I guess my parting message is that people think I do the bullish numbers for clickbait and I get a lot of hate for doing it, but really the, the clickbait is for the greater service of helping people understand that the 747 is priceless in terms of the cows. The modern world is priceless in terms of ancient world technology. Bitcoin is going up forever in terms of inferior technology. And if you are holding custody Bitcoin on an exchange, in an ETF or from your Uncle Joe that gave you a piece of paper saying, I own one Bitcoin for you, right? It, it It's all the same, right? Various probabilities to those three, right? Um, but ultimately, it, it's all the same that they're not the underlying asset. Own the bare asset. Take self-custody. You know, our number one goal is education. You know, you know, um, once you realize that you're too bearish and you want to avoid the custody of Bitcoin and instead you go to deciding between the two, do I do it on my own for free and spend the hundreds of hours and potentially risk a loss myself? Or do I pay someone to do it? I mean, you know, we're, we have, you know, Peter and I have put in a lot of work. We have, uh, you know, numerous articles, lots of free content on our website. People can go to it, Bitcoinadvisor.com Lots of free resources if you want to learn how to do this on your own. Um, you know, but if you want that handholding and someone in your pocket to help you be a couple of years ahead of the curve, it, it, ultimately, I think it's a great service I think it's great value. I think Unchained and all of our other key agents are offering great products. And what I've seen uh, behind the scenes is incredible. The conversations Peter and I have literally every day, I'm I'm so bullish. It, in in the ETF, you know, it is the beginning of the beginning. Whatever price you put in the title, this thumbnail Joe, you know, whether it's a hundred thousand or a hundred million, um, you know, that that is just the beginning. You know, there was no fiat top. And so therefore take the risk of theft seriously, take the risk of single point of failure seriously take the risk of nation-state attack seriously, have keys in multiple jurisdictions, you know, either do it yourself and, and, and pay the cost yourself and trying to figure it out in, in terms of time and, and money, or have someone help you along it, because when this happens, you know, all three of us in this call, Joe, Peter, myself, we're gonna be so busy, and I want to see as many of these um, ancient Bitcoiners from these early days, these pre-ETF days, I want to see as many of these Bitcoiners as possible, uh, make it through the next 10 years, and make it to the hyper-Bitcoinized end, end of the line where they have uh, proper custody of, of their Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, please, people, don't don't be too bearish. Be more bullish uh, it, for, for your mental health as well as for the safety of your Bitcoin portfolio, right? Actually, that, that decreases risk too. You know, If you get your custody down, it decreases your downside, right? I think that's one other point I want to say too is that um, people like to click on these videos for fiat price, But they fail to realize that your main risk is not the volatility in terms of fiat. Your main risk is actually holding the underlying, right? And so the beauty is that when you actually take your custody seriously, you can justify to yourself being more bullish and you actually lower your risk in your Bitcoin exposure because you realize 10% of my Bitcoin risk is price volatility, 90% is custody. So if I can eliminate that 90%, That's the fastest way to justify a higher allocation. That's the fastest way to help my family members buy Bitcoin. And so if you want to buy more Bitcoin yourself and you want to justify, you know, or have your family members justify it, tell them like, you know, don't buy the ETF, you know, own the real Bitcoin. However you do it, just do it. Get off zero, take self-custody. That's the message.
2: I like it. Yeah. Basically hold your Bitcoin without any one single point of failure and don't sell your Bitcoin to BlackRock. Guys, this was this was awesome. Uh, thanks so much for coming on,
1: Joe. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. Keep up the great work. Thanks for having us.